Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. Well, if you would, uh, this morning, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. We want to continue to pray for Brother David and Edwin uh, as they are serving uh, the Lord on the mission field right now, and Jenny as she goes. And so I was happy to preach uh, this morning in light of uh, Brother David's uh, absence. Uh, I love uh, preaching the Word of God. Uh, And so we've been going through this study of living life uh, in light of the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus as we approach uh, the season that that, uh, the Western world calls Easter, but we we celebrate that as the day that Jesus was was raised from the dead, and it's the most glorious holiday and the most significant holiday of uh, the the Christian's life is that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But uh, as we look at the topic today uh, on rest, rest, what it means that we rest in Jesus. And if you know, this past week, we had a record high. Uh, As far as temperature goes, uh, I can't remember which day it was, but it was around 82, 83 was the record high. This time of the year uh, in this area and in Mississippi, it was around 88. And and, and I I loathe uh, the end of spring because I know what's on its way, and that is the blistering heat of the Mid-South, where I wake up with sweat beads on my forehead. Uh, And it takes me back to a time uh, when I I used to work for a company called Green King. Green King Spray Services, some of the uh, most formidable years of my life, uh, to say the least. Some of the most trying uh, years of my life. Uh, But at Green King, I was a lawn lawn technician, and so I was a I didn't work for the guy who said, let me kill your weeds, but essentially that's what I did. We sprayed lawns. We pushed fertilizer. Uh, I was the flower bed guy, and so I took care of flower beds. And so I, I have an interest in horticulture, but I have some of the worst memories of, of working there because of the Mid-South blistering heat. And so I not only had to wear long sleeves, I not only had to wear long pants, but I also had to wear chaps because of the chemicals so they wouldn't soak through my pants and affect my skin. And I also had to wear a massive brimmed hat because I'm allergic to the sun pretty much to to protect my pale white skin from getting just destroyed every single day. And and I remember driving home multiple times. I mean, just some of the days that were awful uh, that I had to push the aerator or I had a long day of flower beds and I was just dripping sweat. And there was one thing that I was looking forward to, and that was getting home. Some of the days I worked two jobs, I'd, I'd spray yards. I was lawn technician by day. I was dishwasher by night at the Windy City Grill in Como. And so there were, there were times in my life in which I two-jobbed it and three-jobbed it just to make ends meet as a young single guy, which wasn't much. But I did what I had to do. And so there were days when I would drive home where I would get off work and there, were, there, there was one thing, there was a beeline in my mind and that was Subway to replenish me and, and a shower to refresh me. And I, would, I had a spot on this couch in my little apartment that I would crash and I would crash hard. And I say all that because I know that some of you and most of you have probably worked to the point of exhaustion 
at some point in your life. Um, you've earned things. You've worked hard. You've sweated outside. You, you've mentally been exhausted. And so this issue in this topic of rest is something that most of us, most of us can relate to, is the need for rest, the need for rest. And it is no different for the life of the Christian, because when we think about the death and the resurrection of Jesus and what he purchased for us, spiritual rest is one of those things. And what does it mean to spiritually rest? Well, uh, hopefully and prayerfully today through this section of Scripture, we will find out. So look at your Bibles in Matthew chapter 11, and I'm going to walk through a passage, verses 25 through 29. And prayerfully, I'll be able to get through it and we'll transition into the Lord's Supper together. But Matthew chapter 11, verses 25, and I'm going to read through verses, verse 30. It says this, it says, at, the, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Verse 28, come to me, Jesus speaking, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So one more time, let me pray and ask God to teach us and to meet with us. Father, thank you for your word. It has stood the test of time. We believe it is true, and we believe, God, you have revealed yourself, your plan of redemption through it. And so I pray for the work of your spirit now as, as we look into your scriptures to make, Lord, those who are lost wise unto salvation, those who are weary and tired, God, would you give us a, a better and deeper understanding of what Jesus purchased for us at the cross that we can rest spiritually. Have mercy on us, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so what we have in this text is really a transitional text at verse 25. And so I've got a few points if you're taking notes in your bulletin this morning uh, that they somewhat go together. We're just going to walk through this and, and go through it together. But the first one is, is, is the condemnation of the proud, the condemnation of the crowd. And it really begins in verse 16, if you'll look in your Bibles. Jesus says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played a flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. He says, for John came neither eating nor drinking, speaking about the fasting and the spiritual practices of John the Baptist. And they say he has a demon. Then he says in verse 19, the son of man came eating and drinking 
with tax collectors and with sinners. And they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He says, yet wisdom is justified by our deeds. And so Jesus begins the condemnation of the religious leaders of that day, beginning in verse 16. And ultimately, that passage of Scripture can be summed up by saying that, that they, John the Baptist and Jesus did not measure up to the standards of the preconceptions that the Messiah should fit in their minds. And so they, they did not fit the criteria. Neither John nor Jesus nor the message of Jesus fit the criteria for who Jesus should be or how he should act or how he should speak about the kingdom of God as the self-proclaimed Messiah. And then he goes on in verse 20 to continue the condemnation. Then he began, in verse 20, it says, then he began to denounce cities where most of his mighty works had been done. It says, because they did not repent. They, they refused to repent. And so the miracles of Jesus, the mighty works that he did, uh, you know, messing with the, you know, coming in supernaturally and doing things that were supernatural were not an end in and of themselves. They were, they were purposed to point to a greater spiritual reality. And that was the identity of Jesus and what he had come to do. But the, we know all throughout the gospels and all throughout the ministry of Jesus that it's the religious leaders of the day who refuse and reject Jesus, rejected by his own people, the Jewish people. And so he begins to denounce cities altogether, starting in verse 20. Look at verse 21. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. He goes on to say, And you, Capernaum, in verse 23, will you be exalted to heaven? It says, You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works, he says this, he says, If, if the mighty works that have been done in front of you had been done in, in Sodom, the city would still remain today. And we know what happened to the city of Sodom it was destroyed and set on fire. And he says that if the works that were done to, in, in Jesus' day were done in Sodom, the city would still exist. They would have repented. He says in verse 24, But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for, than for you. And so, the, again, the purpose of the miracles of Jesus was to point to himself, and these people had missed it completely. So we need to understand the context when we begin in verse 25. We need to understand what, what's the thought pattern, what, what's going on in the text that leads Jesus to pray this prayer publicly and aloud to God the Father. And so he begins, it's condemning those who refuse to repent. And so look at verse 25. At that time, after he had walked through the judgment of these people because they had failed to repent, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have, he says, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. You have hidden these things toward, from the wise and understanding. And so instead of the miracles and the teachings of, of Jesus softening the proud to repentance, it, it did the opposite. It hardened their hearts towards judgment. And so we would have to ask the question, these things. He says, at that time, Jesus declared to God the Father, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And so what has he hidden or what has been hidden as a result of the hardening of the heart? It would have, we would have to, you can even just tr make a track through Matthew. What are the things that Jesus has been teaching on? 
What are the emphasis of his passages? What are his teachings? What are his miracles? He begins in Matthew chapter three, verse eight, where he says, you are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then in Matthew chapter five, when he begins the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, he throws the religious system of the day into complete chaos and turns it on his head as he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so to understand that passage rightly, Jesus is saying, those who are blessed who are empty and spiritually bankrupt, and those are the people that will inherit the kingdom of God, beginning in Matthew chapter five. And then Matthew 8, 22, I mean, we see him call his disciples, follow me. He, he, he calls them to follow him. Matthew 9, 13, Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, he says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Who he was, the, all the I am statements leading up to this point, why he came, he, he condemns the proud and, and then he thanks God the Father. He says, you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. And so is it, is it wrong to be wise or understanding? But we must understand that when he says the wise and understanding, or your translation may say the prudent and the understanding, the wise and the understanding, he's speaking about a spiritual attitude. He's not speaking about a mental capacity. Wisdom in and of itself is not wrong, and intelligent people are not in more inherently sinful than those who do not have larger mental capacities. This group of people's religious pride and intellect blinded them from the truth of the gospel. And so it was an intellect and a wisdom and an understanding that had been perverted by pride and ultimately led them to condemnation. And we know throughout the scriptures, I mean, we, we, we've read that, that God opposes the proud and the rebuke to Israel is that they were a stiff-necked people. And so Jesus says that these things have been hidden from the wise and understanding. The religious leaders all throughout the ministry of Jesus, he's condemning them. Woe to you, you whitewashed tombs. He calls them blind gods. But ultimately, we're all born with the kingdom of God hidden from us because we do not understand. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so you'd have to ask this question. Clearly, we see that the kingdom of God is hidden from those who are proud in heart and unrepentant. And that's what Jesus is beginning to do at the first parts of this passage. He says the, these things are hidden from the wise and understanding. And we'd have to ask the question, how do people get like this? Right? How, how does a person come to the point in place to where they are so hardened in their heart that, that the condemnation of Jesus falls upon them? And again, we're all born spiritually alienated from God, but this is a people who had seen Jesus, who had heard the teachings of Jesus, yet still did not repent and rejected him. And this is an extremely dangerous place to be, is that you've heard the gospel over and over, yet there has been no brokenness, there has been no repentance, there has been no confession of sin, there has been no coming to Christ. And it's a danger in our society as well. 
Over the course of time, our society is becoming less and less moralistic. I mean, that's very clear with Supreme Court judgments and, and what we're uh, calling good, calling good evil, calling evil good. Uh, we see that in our culture. But there still lies remnants of, of a deep moralistic society, especially in the South. And there's nothing wrong with moral things or moral people. But when morality takes the place of the new birth. It is the, Adrian Rogers says, is the worst form of human badness is human goodness. When human goodness takes the place of the new birth. John MacArthur says this, he says, the contrast between the wise and intelligent and the babes is not between knowledgeable and the ignorant, the educated and the uneducated, the brilliant and the simple-minded. It is a contrast between those who think they can save themselves by their own human wisdom, resources, and achievements, and those who recognize that they cannot. And it is a dangerous, dangerous place to be when we may mix words like faith and God and Jesus into a worldview and a heart that is still clinging to good works to save them. They were in a dangerous, condemnable place in the mind of Jesus. And he says, the kingdom of God has, is hidden from these types of people. But then we see the revelation to the humble. So there's the condemnation of the proud that Jesus just condemns these people. He says, Lord, I, I thank you, Lord, of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And it says, and revealed them to little children. Little children can, can literally be translated infants. And so what an infant is, is someone who is dependent. Someone who has a, we know that Jesus speaks of a childlike faith. Babes and infants and children, the, the spiritual equivalent are those who have a spirit-wrought humility that the Spirit of God has brought you to the place of meekness and seeing your need for the gospel. The first people that heard the proclamation of the coming of Christ were shepherds, and that's a picture for us of the lowlice and, 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 and the, the outcasts of society. It's a picture that the humble are receptive to the gospel. And we see that all throughout, the, again, the ministry of Jesus, that he did not come for the righteous. But there, there, the, the crazy thing is there is no one who is righteous, Romans 3 tells us. So we're all unrighteous, but he came for those who would see their unrighteousness and see their need for a Savior. Jesus is constantly seen reclining with the sinners and the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the lepers and the lowlifes, the poor, the prostitutes, the, the tax collectors, the, the, the morally bankrupt and, and tainted of society. And it's a constant thread throughout the scriptures that the proud receive judgment and the humble receive blessing. And there's not one person that enters into the kingdom of God that is saved that does not first think that they need to be saved. There will be no one who is saved that doesn't think that they first need salvation. That is what Jesus is referring to in the passage when he says, you have revealed them to little children. It's people with the proper response before God. And we see the proper response before God throughout the scriptures, whether it's in Isaiah 6 or the beginning of Revelation where John falls like a dead man and Isaiah is before the throne room of God and he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Or it's, or it's Peter after he sees a miraculous miracle of Jesus says, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. 
the common thread and the, and the common denominator in the hearts of those people is that they have been brought to deep brokenness and humility in light of who God is. And this is who Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 11 when he talks about little children. Little children. They know little children and infants are helpless and hopeless. These people know their depend, dependency like an infant. They have a blind, innocent, childlike trust in the only one who can meet those needs. And it's, it's almost impossible for us to humble ourselves. It takes a serious work of the Spirit of God in the proud and self-righteous heart to bring us to a place of brokenness. Or I believe many more people would be saved if we could just humble ourselves unto salvation. Man, if we could just humble, if I could just make myself humble, but the Spirit of God plays a role in bringing us to brokenness. God must humble us. The Spirit must humble us. And then he goes on, look at verse 26. He goes on to say, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It is the will of God to reveal the kingdom of God to those who see the need, who see their need for a Savior. Pride and self-righteousness defies the gospel message. It is the, I mean, we see it in the will of God is that those who are proud in heart and harden their hearts towards the gospel, especially those who constantly hear it, are in far greater danger of being condemned than those who are humble and contrite in spirit, willing to receive the Lord Jesus. The nature of the gospel is built on a great and serious need. The news is good news because of the, right, the badness of the bad news. I mean, the gospel message itself assumes a deep and serious fallenness within humanity. And when we reject that fallenness, and we fail to see our need, we are in great, great danger of condemnation. The gospel is built on the hopelessness of humanity, and it is the design of God. It's the design of God that the gospel message is received by those who would humble themselves. He says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It is God's gracious will in Ephesians 2 when he says, he saves us by grace so that what? So that no man may boast. So that we will know that it is by grace alone. When you look at Romans 3 and 4 and look at what boasting, look how Paul references to, to boasting before God. Romans three twenty seven. he says, if we're saved by grace through faith, what becomes of our boasting? He says, what becomes of our boasting? Romans 4, 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. It is God's gracious will that the humble of the nations find their joy in Christ and in Christ alone. It is God's gracious will that his mercy be displayed. And his mercy is displayed when the, the sinner and the tax collector go into the temple to pray and, the, and the, the tax collector gets arrogant and proud and hardens his heart. Lord, I thank you that I am not like this man. I am not like that man. I give of, of my tithes. I, and and the, the tax collector stands far off and won't even look up to heaven and beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The mercy of God is displayed in the humble of heart who receive the gospel because they see their hopeless state. It is God's gracious design that his grace be displayed among the needy, among those who could not, who recognize that they could not ever earn the favor of God apart from the grace of God. So as we continue in the text, we see that the condemnation of the proud, we see that the revelation to the humble. And he continues to expand on this revelation. 
revealing the kingdom of God. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And so, again, it's, it's, that verse is almost a commentary on verse 25 that it continues to elaborate that this knowledge of God and knowledge of, the, of God the Father and God the Son, it's a divine knowledge. And it's a knowledge that we are not born with. We can know the power of God through creation and we may be able to mentally ascend to the point where we come to the conclusion, yes, there is evidence for a creator, but as far as the saving knowledge of God, the Holy Spirit must work in us as we receive Christ Jesus. If we could come to the conclusion on our own, that, that, that would take God completely out of the picture of salvation. And there are so many trusting in their own faculties and their own mental ascents and their own philosophy to, to somehow explain God or trying to reason their way to God. But Romans 3 says that no one seeks for God. And then it says no one understands so divine truth can only be divinely imparted. And Jesus is, has been doing this. He's been sharing the gospel and these, the Pharisees and religious leaders of the day have been hardening their hearts. Hardening their hearts. John 14, 6 says, No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus says that in John 14, 6. And then we get to the meat, really, of the passage, the invitation to all. Jesus says in verse 28, look in your Bibles. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And what walking through verses 25 through 27, again, is leading up to the central thrust of this passage as it pertains to the death and resurrection of Jesus is that the humble in heart receive spiritual rest as a result of the finished work of Jesus. That is where we're getting to. It's this, it's this glorious gospel invitation by Jesus himself. And it's beautiful. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. So let's break it down. He says, come, come. It's an adverb or a verb that, which means come here or come on. It's in the sense of a command or exhortation. It's a divine invitation for all who are weary and heavy laden to come. And, it, and it, it's a call to whosoever will come because many of the religious leaders who were hardened in their hearts, their hearts were softened by the Spirit of God and they, and they did come to Jesus. And so when we read, come all who are weary, don't think that there are any who are beyond the saving power of God. So he says, come, this divine invitation. Jesus does not say, go and do for the rest, right? He calls us and beckons us in his direction. And before we come to Jesus, we're not, you know, walking towards him, right? We're not headed in his direction, the Bible tells us. Spiritually, we're running from him. We're rebelling from him. We're running as far and as fast as we could go in the opposite direction. And Jesus says, come. We've rejected him in our hearts. We've dethroned him from, uh, as, as the king of the universe and the, the sole authority over all creation. Yet he says, come. In our rejection of Jesus, he says, come. Paul is on his way to, to, to persecute more Christians on the road to Damascus. And, and he, he says, come. He says, come to me. It's a, the call to Jesus 
To enter in this rest is a call to Jesus himself. It's not a call to come to a man unless the, God, unless the man is the God-man, Christ Jesus. It's, it's look unto me, come to me, believe in me. And many have come to church that have not come to Jesus, who have not answered this call. Many have come to a specific place within the sanctuary. Many have come down. Right? They've answered the call to maybe to come down front to some geographic location who in their hearts have not come to Jesus as they are not bearing fruit as a, as a Christian years later. There are many who have come through the waters of baptism who have not come to Jesus himself. Many have come to a serious resolve to self-improve because when the Spirit of God begins to convict us, maybe, maybe we see sin in our life and our, our immediate natural reaction is need to do better. And so many have come to the place of, of resolve, of self-will, to self-improvement, of turning over a new leaf who have not come to Christ. You can outwardly show some signs of coming to Jesus, but never really internally repent, casting aside sin and self-righteousness in coming to Jesus. It's not a geographical move. It's a coming to a person. Jesus, the redeemer of our sins, the Lord of all the earth. It's a casting of ourselves on the mercy of God as we come to Jesus, as we see ourselves in our guilty state. Jesus invites us and beckons us to come before we come to Jesus. Salvation itself is a leaving of oneself internally. It's a turning away from yourself, your sin and your good works, your will and your way, your wicked and worldly pursuits, your vain and empty attempt of good works. It's, it's leaving all those things and coming to Jesus in surrender. You don't come to a physical place, but a place of brokenness internally through the conviction of your sin and your trust that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. You come to Jesus with nothing. He doesn't say, bring anything. He says, come to me because we have nothing to offer God. We have nothing to offer him, but the sin that makes our salvation so necessary. And then he says, come to me. And then he gives the description of those who he's immediately in the context speaking to. He says, come to me all who labor and are weary and heavy laden. Your translation may say weary. Mine says labor. It's the, it's the same word. The root word is kopos. It's a Greek word. It was used in secular Greek of a beating or, or weariness. Though, had one, though one had been beaten, an exertion. It was the proper word for physical tiredness induced by work or heat. It means to exhibit great effort and exertion to the point of sweat and exhaustion, to physically become worn out, weary, or faint, to engage in hard work with the implication of difficulty and trouble. It's not the actual exertion as the weariness which follows, but it's, it's those who are beat down and trodden, those who are downtrodden, those who are exhausted. And Jesus is not speaking to those who are physically exhausted, although there is a sense in which Jesus does provide refreshment physically. But he's speaking of the spiritual state 
of the hardened sinner's heart. So we'd have to say it's a spiritual attitude. Those who are spiritually weighed down, internally weighed down, and we'd have to say, working for what? What are we working for? And the work here is to, is to please God. You see, the, the immediate context are those who were under the yoke of the religious leaders who had added tons and tons of interpretations to the Mosaic law, whether it be ceremonial or moral. And so these people are, in their hearts, weighed down. They are, they are heavy feeling the guilt of their sin and, and the exhaustion from trying to keep the law. They're pictured as overloaded beasts of, of burden. And their work is, is, is to please God. The legalistic works-based system is an exhausting system. We see this all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the ministry of Jesus. The Pharisees come to Jesus. What do they, what do they ask? Why don't, why don't your disciples fast? Why are you doing, why are you doing what, what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Why are you healing people? On the, why are you doing things that are unlawful? Why, why don't your disciples wash before they eat? And this is what the law does. Paul deals with this in the book of Romans. Read the book of Romans chapters 3 through 8. The Pharisees are a tired bunch of guys, whether they realize it or not. Uh, and they themselves are not as tired as they should be because Jesus condemns them later on in the Gospel of Matthew because he says, you, you, you burden the people with laws and restrictions, yet you yourself are not able to lift a finger. And so this is what the law do, does. If understood the wrong way, the law is a, a ladder to get to God. It's a staircase, we think, wrongfully, that it's a staircase that if I follow these things, it, it will somehow earn me the favor of God, but it's, it's a staircase that never ends. And, and the longer and the harder you climb, the further you are away to your destination. This is why that James, in the book of James, he refers to the law as a mirror. The law is to help us see our inability to keep it and our need for grace and mercy. And if the Pharisees could perfectly keep the ceremonial law, what about the moral law? It's an ever-escalating standard. The Ten Commandments are there to help us see our inability to keep the Ten Commandments. They're not a list of do's and don'ts. And if we do enough good, if we, if we follow them right, if, if our good outweighs our bad on, on our best day, then somehow we'll earn favor with God. And every other world religion focuses on works-based. It's a works-based religion. It's based on what I can do for God. Hinduism, right? They, they do a system of works where they can wreak moksha, which is the, the Hindu heaven. Buddhism, Islam, you know, you're on, the, on the day of judgment in Islam, your good works are weighed against your bad works. Catholicism, heavy, right? Teaches it does not teach justification by faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone. And there are cults of Christianity who teach works-based religion, but, but it's crept into to Christianity as well. It's crept into uh, the 20th century with, with pop psychology mixed with a form of Christianity. It's extremely dangerous. Tell me if you've heard these words. You just need to do better. We all need to do better. Be a better you. Your problem is not you, it's your environment. God made you to be a winner. And we live in a culture where self-esteem is the end-all 
be all. And at the root of this can-do attitude is a works-based system that damns us to hell. It is extremely serious when we mix the gospel with moralistic teaching that has at the root of it our own effort and somehow earning God's favor. We are no better than the Jews at the time of Jesus. But not only the legalistic system, the, the burden of sin itself. These people are weighed down by the burden of sin because there is a burdening weight to sin, every sin. There is weight to a fallen world, <clears throat> just the results of sin. We live in a, in a heavy, sin-filled, fallen, sick world with mental disorder and disability, disease and death, and it, it's heavy. But not only that, the weight of our own personal sin. There is a weight that the unbeliever is building up before God. Their sin is measuring with each continued day, with each continued failure to look to Christ for salvation alone, there is a weight that is building on their shoulders that they are eternally unable to carry, but will pay the penalty. They are walking on rotten, whole-filled ground, suspended above an eternity in hell separated from God. Its consequences are weighty and heavy. The consequences of sin are miserable, and weighty and heavy on the soul. And Jesus comes and invites and says, all who are burdened down, all who are heavy laden, he says, I will give you rest. And this is the soul rest that, that the gospel and Jesus purchases that we could never earn ourselves. The, the term rest really could be translated refresh. It is not only something that causes someone to become physically refreshed, but also refreshed as a result of resting from work. It signifies to cause or permit one to cease from labor, labor or movement so as to recover their strength. It implies a previous toil and work and striving and care our English word ref refresh and restore gives a, a better understanding of what Jesus was talking about here. And even our English definition means to, to give new strength or energy to or invigorate, to relieve after fatigue, to reanimate after depression, to revive what is drooping, to restore or maintain a renewing supply. But how is it that Jesus can give us this rest and this satisfaction and this refreshing? Jesus can give rest because Jesus has done the work. The gospel is a message of that, that, that sinners and, and people who are unable to offer God anything are given everything. The I, when Jesus speaks in verse 28, is emphatic. He alone will give you rest. What an invitation. Jesus gives the lost sinner Rest because Jesus is the only hope and help to the lost sinner. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The sinner looks to everything the world has to offer for this deep-rooted sense of satisfaction and rest that they desperately need. <clears throat> they look to everything else other than Christ. They are drinking from a fountain that will continue to make them thirsty and thirsty and thirsty. They will never ever be satisfied apart from Jesus. 
Whether they know it or not, the only satisfaction that the lost sinner needs is the peace, the inner peace that comes from being reconciled with a holy God only through the person and work of Jesus. And he says, he beckons in other scriptures, he says, come and drink of this water. He says, you'll never thirst again, picturing ultimate and eternal satisfaction, rest and refreshment. And the burden worsens, as I mentioned earlier, when the Holy Spirit begins to work in them to convince them, right? The Holy Spirit convicts us and convinces us of the judgment and the character of God. He opens our eyes to the sin that is in our life that we've been ignoring. We understand our fallenness in a whole new light. And again, the, the initial natural response is, I've got to do, I need to do better. Because all of our human relationships are formed that way. There's hardly any human relationship that is truly unconditional where we don't think in our minds or it doesn't work in such a way where we do something to earn favor with somebody else. Very rarely do we see that at all. But that logic is flawed because it turns us into the prodigal brother who, who begins to brag on what he had done to earn the father's favor. Both of the prodigal, both of the sons are prodigal. Both are far from God. One is rebelling against God right? Running from his father. The other is trusting in his good works to earn favor with his father. So it's a, it's a flawed logic. And this, it, it happened to me. When I, I'll never forget when I began to understand my sin at 19. And I began to see, I, I just, man, I, I thought I was okay. And the spirit of God just made clear in my heart, like something's not lining up. You're claiming to be this, but you're living this way. There's no brokenness. There's no signs of fruit or anything like that. And so my initial response was, you know what, I'm going to do, I got to change. I've got to change. I've got, I'll do it. I've got to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I can earn the favor of God if I could just be a little better. If I could stop lying, if I could stop manipulating, if I could get my act together, maybe the Lord would, would see me as worthy. But that logic is flawed. You, I, there was no, no good I could do to bridge the, the gulf's gap between my sin and the holiness and righteousness of God. And so Jesus gives rest in freeing us from this bondage. His works are better than our works because his work satisfies the judgment and the wrath of God. His work is better than our work because he finished the job. He satisfied the demands. And his work is greater than your sin, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so for the lost sinner, they no, have to, no longer have to carry the weight of their sin. God has placed it on Jesus. That's the central message of the gospel is the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he suffers as I should have suffered, is that he received the judgment of God that I should have received. And so I come and I find rest. I found rest. I think it was June of 2008. I found rep, I mean, immediately I felt a sense of burden being lifted that I knew what the God, I began to understand and comprehend the gospel and surrender my life to Jesus because I, I, I got the cross. I began to understand this is why the work of Jesus is so important because what I'm doing right now is killing me and I cannot keep it up. I cannot earn God's favor. He brought me to the base of brokenness and helped me understand, listen, this is what the work of Christ is for. I, need, I needed soul and spiritual rest. You no longer have to carry the weight of your sin because Jesus takes it on his shoulders and pays the penalty. But many need rest and don't see their need for rest. And they haven't comprehended what 
their sin is. They don't, they don't see how weighty it is. And what was, the go- what was the gospel to the Jews? What does it say? To the Jews, it was, a, it was a stumbling block to the Jews. The Greek word for when it renders it stumbling block is skandalon. It's where we get our English word scandal. So the gospel has a scandalous nature in which undeserving, unrighteous sinners get the righteousness of the perfectly obedient Jesus for nothing. And the Jews, in their legalistic, moralistic system, they could not comprehend how God would pardon people for nothing. But that's where the love and the grace of God is on display. And who could believe it, right? It was a stumbling. It kept them. The grace of the Lord Jesus kept them from coming to God because it's foolish, right? That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that the cross is what to an unbelieving world? It's foolishness and folly to an unbelieving world. How God pardons sinners for nothing, all by grace and all by love. And that's so counterintuitive. I mean, we don't, I, I, and we're going to transition that Jesus gives the guilt-ridden sinner, even as a believer, as I know I've been justified by grace alone, my tendency is to drift towards works-based righteousness is to think in my mind, my good days where I'm having my devotional and I'm praying as I should somehow earn me a a better favor and better standing with God. In the days where I'm struggling and I can't seem to put off or have victory over a specific sin, then those are the days that maybe my standing before God isn't isn't what it should be. But the finished work of Jesus is the pillow that my works-based wandering heart lays its head on at night. It's, all, it's about the finished work of Jesus. When he says at the cross, it is finished, it was a work that was completed, that I have nothing to add to it. My standing before God is based on Jesus and his work and not my work. There is a drift in my thinking. You see that very line of thinking, my good days, my, my good works or my bad works, That very line of thinking, there are too many personal pronouns in that. As if my good works, as if that's how I was justified in the first place, right? It's clear in the scriptures that I'm justified by by grace alone and, and faith alone and Christ alone. But my mind still goes there to think that I somehow can attribute to God's favor on me. But we must be encouraged, even as believers, the rest that Jesus gives the believer is the continued rest and assurance that our salvation is not bound to, to our obedience, right? There are fruits of obedience that prove your salvation, but your standing before God has nothing to do with your level of obedience. It, it, it's based on the level of obedience that Jesus showed, which was perfect, which was imputed to us in his death and resurrection. It wasn't us who secured our favor in the first place nor our sin so bad that it wasn't redeemable or forgivable or overcomable by Christ and his work. I have a quote by Sinclair Ferguson. If my mind drifts towards works for my standing before God, he said, you dissolve the very basic definition of grace itself. He said, grace rules out all qualifications by definition. Grace therefore eliminates boasting. It suffocates boasting. It silences any and all negotiations about our contribution before they can even be given. He says, by definition, we cannot qualify for grace in any way, by any means, or through any action. Thus, it's understanding God's grace. That is to say, 
understanding the character of God himself that demolishes legalism. Grace highlights legalism's bankruptcy and shows that it's not only useless, it's pointless. And so we must look at, I mean, the, the, the word, the death, the resurrection of Jesus purchases assurance for the believer that it has nothing to do with us. And on our hard days where we're struggling against sin, we cannot seem to overcome. We don't begin to, to, to drift and sway with every wind and wave of doctrine that we're rooted and grounded in the truth that Jesus has died for me. That God is merciful and he is gracious. We must look away from ourselves and find rest in Jesus. He still beckons the believer. The death and the resurrection of Jesus is not just a message to be proclaimed on Easter. It's not just a message to be proclaimed to lost people. It is a reservoir of unending satisfaction for the believer, for the Christian. The gospel is for the Christian. The death, the resurrection of Jesus is something I return to on a daily basis, not that I have to earn it or be brought to it to, to save me, but to remind me that it's not my works that save me or my lack of works that save me. Jesus, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, purchases rest, spiritual exhaustion. We can come to Christ in all of our struggles and, and, and be edified and built up and strengthened as a body of believers, recognizing that it's Jesus alone in his work that gives us rest. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions, or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.